The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 305 for Monday, December 20th, 2010. Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you write the agenda, you ask the questions, you send in your tips. We provide as many answers as we can here in Durham, New Hampshire. I am Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, I am John F. Braun. And back in Durham, Pilot Pete for, I think, the second show in a row. Working on a new record. We're making a habit of this, <laughs> yeah. Pete. It's good to have you. It's Thank good to you. have And then it's good it's to nice have all of head. you. That's right. All of our, uh, all of you listeners and uh and supporters, it's fantastic to uh, to have you out there for whom to do the show for. And perhaps we need some grammatical uh, consultation. Yeah. There you go. Yes, we does. <laughs> um, you know, you know, Dave. Oh, before we get head. started, I I, yeah. I have to make a I have to make an announcement. It could go. I, if I if, if Pete wasn't between me and my snare drum, I would do a drum roll for you. But uh, <laughs> but he is. So you, you gotta, I'm 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 going to have a new addition to the family. A new addition to the family. John, you're pregnant. <laughs> I don't believe so, but I'm going to tell you. So so, so I'm going to tell you what I mean here. Uh, uh, my my computing family. So ah. you know how I'm adverse to change, but oh. No, I have my upcoming, no. uh, but as you may have, you know, we discussed in the past, you know, I'm uh, getting ready to send in my MacBook Pro because it's it's having issues with the trackpad and the right. USB port. Right. Getting errors. I called Apple Care and they're like, yeah, I, I basically told the guy what the problem is. And, you know, he didn't challenge me or anything. I said, you know, I'm getting these errors in the console. Um, I, I did the call me back service, which is awesome. So went online, entered my serial number. It brought me to, you know, a thing saying, call me back. And it was like, you know, 5 of 5 p.m. And I said, well, call me back at 5 p.m. At like 5.03 p.m., I got a phone call. So this is such a cool feature. And, the, and I tell the guy basically what, um, you know, what, what the problem was. You know, the machine will give me USB multi-touch errors and eventually it'll lock up. I can, you know. Right. Uh, you know, if I if I shut the machine down and restart it, and sometimes I'll lose the trackpad and the keyboard, and, and he's like, well, yeah, you know, it sounds like probably something with the motherboard. So uh, he's like, would you like to go to an Apple store or a service center, or, or you want the box? And I'm like, yeah, I want the box. Right. So the box came today. But in the meantime, I was thinking, you know, what am I going to do in the meantime? Because my MacBook Pro is pretty much my daily machine for doing email and tweeting and, you know, all, all, all the other stuff. All the, all the necessary things as a part of your life. Uh, absolutely. That's right. So... I decided, you know, do I really want to mess around? And we're going to talk about mail later. But, like, you know, to me, the primary apps are email, which, you know, is pretty much I, I need daily access to. Sure. And the only other option. And I actually experimented with this and had some success, Dave, because, of course, on my G5, there is mail. It's an earlier version of it. And as we, we discussed, the mail data, depending on how you set up mail, and we'll talk about this, too, is in, I think, your home folder library mail, I believe, is where all that is. So, you know, I'm like... Let me give it a shot because I really hadn't used the G5 for mail. So I copied that whole folder over and that in addition to using mobile me to sync uh, signatures and rules and stuff like that. Other than it re-retrieving, I think some emails that that um, had come in since it pretty much. Ah, right. Get to the point. <laughs> <laughs> Dave just messaged me. So anyways, so I tried to get mail working on, on the G5 and, and also got a Twitter client. But then I'm like, you know, I don't want to go through all that hassle. So what I did is t took 
my boot drive out of my MacBook, put it in an external enclosure, because when I talked to them, they said, well, you know, if we determine a problem is with the drive that you put in there yourself, we're going to replace it. I'm right. Like, oh, no, that's no good. So I, I still had the 250 that it originally came with, popped the machine open, put that drive in. I'm now running my drive off of the USB enclosure connected to the MacBook. And when I get the new edition of the family, which is the mini, my plan is to plug that drive into there and for however long it takes them to fix it run off of the mini so, so i it, decided to get a mini here's my here's my guess uh, as long as they have the parts you need you're sending it out today right today is monday has it already left well no no the thing is i don't yet have a configuration that i can run my my the, the mini i ordered will be ah. coming tomorrow oh i see okay so what it, i want to do is get the mini working with the drive that used to be in my MacBook that has all my current data and get that to work with the mini, then I'm going to send it off. So I may wait a day or two. And okay. So it'll probably, if you know, if it, if, if it were to leave today, it would arrive at Apple tomorrow and it would probably leave Apple tomorrow and be back to you by Wednesday, as long as they have the parts. That's been my experience a hundred percent of the time with their, uh, with their repair facilities. But let's talk about this mini. So which mini did you buy? What'd you get? Well, you know, I got the pretty much what we'll call the entry. Uh, and yeah, I believe that Tennessee handles the portables right now. So um, but uh, I, I said mine, mine went to, I think, Austin, Texas. OK, yeah, I think so. But yeah, it, uh, yeah, whichever. Well, I, I got the basic mini. So it's the uh, I think it's the 2.4 gigahertz, you know, dual core. Yep. Uh, two gigs of RAM, uh, the 320 gig hard drive, you know, yeah. pretty much the, the entry level machine. The, which, the, you six, know, the retails, 699 one, right? Which from Apple is for six ninety nine. Now I I did uh you know I poked around and I actually got a uh, slightly better price from a B and H which is in New York, and they offer free shipping. And because they're in New York, uh, it shipped out today and it should arrive tomorrow. Cool, awesome. So now that's I may want to bump up that RAM because two get I'm, I'm going to do it as an experiment. And the drive that's in there is you know fifty four hundred RPM. It's not the highest performing drive, right? But we'll see how it goes. But but I think, you know, the G5 is six years old, Dave. You remember when I got this? So I, so I think I'm going to get at least the same level of performance. And and I don't use it for anything heavy duty. I mean, I use it, as you know, for for Skype and the podcast. I do my iTunes on it and maybe some game gaming is, is what I use the, the desktop for. So I'm looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, every six years, I think is about right to get a new machine. But the mini is just very attractive from a price standpoint. And from, a you know, I think it'll give me the performance that I need for what I use it for. That's outstanding. That's awesome. Awesome. That's great. That should be, that should be a fun machine for you. Yeah. You can get it up to eight gigs if, uh, if you want, but it, yeah, it, good experiment to, to run it at two for a little bit before you, uh, before you break out of the mold. Right. Cause I know you and I both recommend, you know, typically I, I think it's the bare minimum and well, that's why Apple offers that. Right. But we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see how it does as the uh, podcasting machine at the next podcast. I, I think I'll have it all set up and running by the time, uh, you know, a week from now. Right. Uh, yeah, maybe not though. Cause I'm not going to be around next Monday. So we can talk oh. about the schedule. This, this may, may be our last podcast of the, oh. uh, of the year, uh, but depending on how our schedules work. So it's possible. I don't know. We, we, we right. figure it out. So enough about me, Dave, let's, right. uh, let's get down to business here. Let's go. Yeah. All right. Uh, we have, we actually have a lot of great stuff. We got a ton of comments on the last show uh, that we did here on show three Oh three, which was our last regular show. So, um, but uh, we got a ton of those and, and we've got some great questions to, to go through. Uh, but first, I want to tell you about our first sponsor, which actually has a new product, Circus Ponies. Uh, of course, they have Notebook for the Mac and Notebook uh, on the Mac allows you to create 
Well, they call the documents notebooks, which is no great surprise. And the cool part about them is you can put all sorts of data in there. You can put text in. You can build a little hierarchy of your text. You can put images in. You can put PDFs in. You can mark up all this stuff and then you can search through it. Uh, And so people create notebooks for lots of different things. You might have a class you're taking. You might have an event you're planning. You might have a project you're working on and you can store all the data, the related data together in this one notebook. It doesn't have to just be text. It doesn't have to just be PDFs. You don't have to keep it all in like a folder and open it with various different programs. You stuff it all into this one notebook. You keep it all in line. If you're making, you know, let's say you're planning a Christmas dinner, right? You know, you could put a picture uh, of the, uh, you know, of the, the casserole that you're making right next to the recipe for that casserole. And, you know, you could have it on a PDF. You could have it on a, an image. You could mark up the PDF. If the recipe's on a PDF, you could say, oh, you know, double this because last time that worked really well. Well, now they have notebook for the iPad. And the cool thing is you can create notebooks directly on your iPad. You can sync them with your Mac as long as you're running the latest version on your Mac. So go ahead and, you know, update. Uh, it's free. Update the latest version on your Mac. And then you can use them on your iPad. Uh, I've had an opportunity to use a little bit on the iPad and it's smooth. Uh, it's uh, it, you can do all all the stuff that that I would have wanted to do. Uh, you can search, you can take, you can take notes on the PDFs. You can, as I said, you know, have documents that go back and forth between the uh, iPad and the Mac and, uh, and it's available from the app store now. So you can get circus ponies notebook for the Mac as a free download, uh, for a trial. Uh, and then 30 days, uh, is your, uh, is your trial time after that it's 50 bucks on the Mac and then notebook on the iPad is 30 bucks. And you can buy that from the App Store. So uh, that's Circus Pony's notebook. Pete, you're a notebook user. Have you tried the iPad I version haven't. yet? I haven't. No, that looks cool. we got to get you on that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll be yeah. all over that. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's move into our questions, John. And let's go to Gary. And Gary writes, I've been having a problem with Safari for a while now. Many web pages do not display properly until I press the command and plus keys to magnify them. Uh, Since I use Safari in order to keep bookmarks synced with my iPad and iPod, I have no choice but to find a fix or suffer. I remember ages ago when I used to use OmniWeb, it would allow you to lock in the magnification on a site-by-site basis. Is there any way to do this in Safari? So, yeah, he's talking about magnification. And if you haven't tried this out, it's actually pretty cool. Uh, If you're on a website, you can go to the view menu And about halfway down, you'll see zoom in, zoom out, and then also zoom text only, which is kind of cool because you can zoom the text and leave the images the same size. Uh, But as he said, the keyboard shortcut for zooming in is command plus and then zooming out, as you might guess, is command negative or minus whatever uh, that right word might be. Uh, So how do you lock the zoom in? And I don't know of a way to lock the zoom in, but what I do know if you go to... uh, in, in Safari, if you go to into the preferences, into advanced and choose uh, in the universal access section of advanced, there is a checkbox next to which it says never use font sizes smaller than and then it has a font size you can choose. So based on your personal preference, your monitor, your visual preferences and all that stuff, you can ratchet this stuff up or down uh, and and that will give you a, a baseline minimum of the font size that uh, 
that it's going to display on any given web page. Hopefully that will fix it for you. I don't, I don't know of any other way to, uh, to, to adjust the zooming and, and have it persist. But John, have you seen anything like that? No, no. Okay. No, I'll be, I'll be straight with you though. I did pick up a very quick tip here for Safari, which I I had never explored, but I I think I saw one of on Twitter somewhere Yeah, to go between tabs. Oh yeah. Control tab. will go between tabs. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I just never known that but before. I, I would, you know, click on it, which, you know, doesn't take a long time. But if you're good with the keyboard or can't get to the, your, uh, your trackpad or your pointing device. So that was kind of neat to learn. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Um, okay. Yeah, that's cool. That's interesting. I like that. Uh, moving on to a question from John. Actually, not uh, not you, John, but the other John on our staff here at TMO, John Martellero. He asked us uh, in Eudora, there was a way to analyze filter rules to see which rule was applied. When do you know if there's a way to do that in Apple's mail? Needless to say, I have a rule mystery and I'm trying to track it down, looking for a rule analyzers uh, at Hawkwings and didn't see anything. Hawkwings, of course, being an excellent site about Apple's mail. But uh, it's been I I don't know if it's still up to date. It, it, uh, It goes through phases. But uh, but nothing, nothing over there. So I didn't have an answer for him, John, but you came up with a very creative solution. I had an answer. So one, I love John's signature on his email, which is sent from my iPad because I'm from the future. That's right. <laughs> which I think yeah, Mr. Martellero. Well, he, he may be. Yeah. He might be. <laughs> but anyway, so so I broke out the old Google Foo and I did find a Macworld article that tells you how to do this, Dave. And this is a feature that has been in mail, I think, for some time. But basically, the key here is when you define a rule, there are a number of actions that you can execute if a rule is uh, fulfilled, like matching a to address, a from address. There's a whole bunch of them. But you can also do this one other thing, Dave. You can run an Apple script. And so basically, the article I find, which, of course, we will link to, is a short Apple script that when executed will give you the name of the rule that was executed. So what you have to do, I mean, it may be kind of a pain in the neck. It's one time thing. He'll have to go through all his rules and add this Apple script. But you basically, it's very simple. You take this Apple script, copy and paste it into the Apple script editor, save it. You can just save it as a regular Apple script, not even a application. Okay. And then add a new action for the rule saying, run this Apple script. If the rule is executed, when it is, it will show you, the name of the rule that was executed and the subject of the email. I believe that will now John must have a boatload of rules and my rules are pretty simple, but I guess his rules are complex enough where it, yeah, he doesn't know which one is running when, when uh, something weird happens. Uh, So, but it's a neat feature because I mean, Apple scripts are very flexible. So, I mean, I I could just imagine you could do a whole bunch of things, um, you know, with the Apple script, I mean, you could, you know, play a sound when the email comes from a certain person or just all sorts of fun things. So the answer is yes, you can do this. I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe in the cons, nah, probably not, because I think that I look in the console and the console, I don't think matches or when a rule is, is met because that, that would just be too much garbage. Yeah. 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 I don't think so. I don't, I, I've looked and I haven't found a log where they, uh, where they track that stuff, but there might be. Uh, a command line debug setting that you can use when launching mail to set it, you know, it, it uh, keeps all that stuff. I couldn't find anything though. So, all right. Um, another one that, uh, that kind of hits close to something you've been through in the past, John, perhaps uh, Jason writes, 
I discovered an issue today with the optical drive in my early 2008 MacBook, and it has me stumped. I hope you can help me out. I tried to play a DVD, but the disc would spin up, then stop, try again, then stop, and repeat on and on. The disc never mounted on my desktop, and pressing the eject button on the keyboard did nothing. The drive has been replaced twice before, so I thought it might have gone bad again, but System Profiler still showed the drive under disc burning, where it has disappeared during the previous breakdowns. The DVD has sometimes refused to play on my living room DVD player, so I wasn't panicking just yet. After rebooting, however, OS X wouldn't come back up. It seemed to get stuck at the blue screen that usually precedes the login screen. I could hear the optical drive trying to read the disc just as before. I decided to crack open the machine and retrieve the disc, after which the laptop booted up just fine. Now, this is where it gets confusing. I have a backup external DVD drive that I bought the last time this internal drive failed. This drive won't work with this MacBook either. I've tried multiple discs, including the Snow Leopard install DVD, and no optical disc will mount on this machine. My wife's MacBook, however, has no problem with any of them. It can read all the same DVDs that frees up my computer with either the internal or external drive. Can you please help me track down the problem? I think I've eliminated the disks and the physical drive is the source of the issue. Could a driver be corrupted? How can I fix this without access to the install DVD? All right. Uh, John, you want to take this one for a little bit? No. Okay. Yes. Great. Of course. No. So, so as you pointed out, Dave, I had a weird problem a number of years ago where my DVDs would uh, just DVDs, not data DVDs, but video DVDs would not be recognized. So normally when you put a video DVD in your max DVD drive, it, I think the default behavior, it's in one of the system preferences, it'll fire up DVD player and show you the menu and you can watch your DVD and everything's good. At one point, my machine stopped doing that. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? This is terrible. Here's what it was, Dave. And I would have never thought this, but I think I found in either discussions, uh, you know, discussions, apple.com. And actually, I found a thread, which we'll link to, of course. Of course. I had recently gotten a Lexar flash drive. And it was kind of cool because it was one of the first flash drives, uh, which I since put through the wash and it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> but it had this e-ink display, but it also had this really neat feature which is that you could encrypt the data on it. And the way it did this, Dave, is that it installed a system extension, which you will find in, typically all your extensions are going to be in system library extensions. Right, right. Um, you could either look in that folder or, you know, system profiler will show you this. But as it turns out, their system extension that would enable you to do this whole secure storage thing on the drive, so that basically when you, if you put the drive in another computer, unless you had the magic password, you would not be able to see the data, which I think is a, is a wonderful feature. And I think other vendors offer that as well. But that was the problem. There, there was this KEXT in the system extensions. And once I removed it, everything was working great. So my first suggestion, and it, it could take a while, uh, I, I would suggest running System Profiler and looking in the software category and then the extensions category. Look in there or, you know, just think, Think. have you installed any disk-related utility, hmm. whether it be a flash drive or have you gotten a new hard drive and the, the vendor has some software that they like to install for whatever reason that adds additional functionality? That could be interfering with the ability of the OS to get to the drive. Absolutely. So... That's my first suggestion. The other one is he could have a corrupted driver. And the driver, as far as I can tell, the driver that handles the DVD drive is, if you look in the extensions view in System Profiler, it's called IO DVD Storage Family. 
and there's a version number and a date and all that. And I sent it to them and we'll see if they match. If they don't, then perhaps there's a corrupted driver. Now, I suppose you could take that driver and, you know, take it from a backup and replace it. You probably have to, you know, give your password or do set special permissions for it. Because I think, yeah, when, when Mac OS 10 sees you messing around in that area, it gets kind of upset because you really shouldn't be directly right. messing with things in that extensions folder, I think. So that's, um, that's another extension, uh, another suggestion. Now, the only thing I'll add, and then I'll, I'll see if you have any thoughts, Dave. Yep. Well, two more things to add. So one, uh, he said they actually had to open up the machine to manually, I guess, uh, you know, uh, retrieve the, the disk that was stuck in there. Yeah. If you know about keyboard shortcuts, one, one keyboard shortcut that I, I often use is to hold down the, the mouse, or mouse button. button. Yeah, right. right. If you hold that down and you boot the machine, what that tells the Mac is, hey, if there's anything in the optical drive, eject it before you do anything else. That's right. So he didn't need to go in the machine. <laughs> well, presume uh, as long as there's nothing physically wrong with the drive, he didn't need to go in the machine because it it or, or or something wrong with his Mac in general. But but I agree with you in this instance, it sure sounds like it's software, not hardware. And and the trackpad or the mouse button would have ejected the disc that's in there. No, you know, it, the other thing from what I recall, Dave, the slot load drive, I do believe there is. A place on one or the other edge of the slot load drive, where if you get a paper clip or something, that will do a mechanical eject. Not, not on the not not in any okay. recent models. Okay, yeah. I don't even Got think it. on our model. Some people have been able to get discs out by putting a little credit card underneath. Bingo! That's where I was going to go. Yeah, I had okay. a warped disc one time, and uh, if you take a uh, take a credit card and slide it in there, I've had luck getting that out. So yeah, you just kind of <clears throat> pop it, and it releases. And- right? Yeah, it, it just you know where you're holding the eject, you get it to come. It'll slide on that credit card, pull the credit card out of the way. It, it, it avoids having to go into the machine unnecessarily. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But on and the finally, MacBook Pro 13, it's easy to swap out. That's in, It's right there. Uh, right, right. Right. So. And finally, what I'm going to offer, because this, this is another problem I had recently um, where I couldn't burn. Now, it wasn't a reading problem. It was a burning problem. But I was unable to burn dual layer DVDs, which are the eight gig or so DVDs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is going on here? I. The, the machine, first they would say, well, I had a problem with this. Uh, do you want me to ratchet down the, uh, the burn speed? Which, you know, could be an indication maybe you got cheap media or something, but it wasn't cheap media. I got brand name media. But I put in a lens cleaner, ran the lens cleaner. It spit, you know, you put in a lens cleaner, it spins for a bit, and then it spits it out. It should spit it out because it's like, a, you know, there's, there's no valid data on there. Right. And that fixed my burn problem. So another, uh, my last suggestion, and then I'll see if you guys have thoughts, is maybe you need a lens cleaner. Yeah, I'm going to I don't think it's that only because it's happening on two drives. Right. My my guess is <sighs> right, right, right. it's a driver issue. Um, now, assuming it's a driver issue issue and assuming that we're going to be able to uh, eject the, um, the 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 drive, the disc with a you know trackpad, then your Snow Leopard install, install DVD could help you because what you can do is put that disc in and reboot and hold down the C key. Now, at that point. There are no drivers from your hard drive loaded and your Mac should boot from your Snow Leopard install DVD. If it doesn't, now you've got a real problem and that's a that's a hardware issue. Uh, but again, because it's happening with both drives and being very consistent, I, I'm, I'm leaning towards it being just something about your install. I think your driver thing, John, is right. The great part is those drivers exist on the Snow Leopard install DVD because it has OS 10 on it. 
So you can boot up and you can get into the terminal and copy drivers back and forth uh, and do what you need to do right from there. And then you should be able to reboot and go back to the hard drive in theory. Um, but that that's uh, yeah, maybe it, that, I can't think of anything else, but I'm sure if one of you out there does, you'll you'll let us know. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we good on this one, John? I think we're good. Okay. Uh, you know, John spoiled himself. Uh, he bought himself a Christmas present and it's coming. It's, it's, it's his <laughs> Mac mini. That's what I did. That's right. I took your advice, Dave. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. So there's no reason you can't spoil yourself. And our second sponsor has a fantastic product with which to do so. And that is audio engine at audio engine, A set of audio engine. A twos is are going to make your, Max audio sound much, much better than the built-in speakers that you have. You could also just get a set of these and plug them into your iPod in the living room and, and listen to them there or in the kitchen or really anywhere in the house. You do not need a Mac to hook up to these, but they do sound great hooked up to a Mac. Uh, the A2s are, uh, they're about, uh, I don't know, what, about six inches tall? They've got two speakers in each enclosure. There's a left and right enclosure. They are self-powered, meaning you just plug them into the wall. You plug your iPod in and you're good to go. And uh, they're 199 bucks from AudioEngineUSA.com. If you've really been good this year, though, uh, then maybe you want to consider the Audio Engine A5s, or as they call them, the Audio Engine 5s. Uh, those are a little bit bigger and have a little bit bigger sound. And they cost a little bit more. Three forty nine for the Audio Engine A five. That's what I have here in the studio. I think John's got the same thing. Uh, again, two speakers per enclosure, and there are two enclosures. Uh, these have self powered, just like the A twos, and they've got uh, a AC port on the back, so you could even plug in, uh, you know, a, a heck, you could plug in your Apple TV into one of these uh, to power it, or you can plug in your iPod. It's got a little USB charger on the top. So three forty nine for the A fives, one ninety nine for the A twos. But you get ten percent off by using our coupon code of MGGTEN. So uh, you can spoil yourself and save a little bit in the process. And you know, hey, you deserve it. So AudioEngineUSA.com. <laughs> and and now we're going to go to Phil. Uh, a question that's kind of been lingering for a little bit, and it's been lingering because I wanted to make sure we had an answer. So Phil writes, I've been using and enjoying BusyCal, as you have recommended. It has worked great, and I love the added features, although it still like, seems like it has a good ways to go. But it's way better than iCal. When MobileMe announced the upgraded calendar, I jumped in and did the change, only to find that at the time it wasn't working with BusyCal. I downgraded and went back to where I was. Now, however, BusyCal has been updated to work with the new MobileMe calendar, and, what do you, and I'm curious what you recommend. Should I or should I not move to the new CalDAV calendar on MobileMe? And if so, why or why not? What would happen if I decide not to renew my MobileMe subscription? I do sub- subscribe to some Google calendars, by the way, and I would not want to lose those. OK, so I was in uh, I was in a similar boat to Phil. Uh, I have all of my calendars synced to Google and did not want to introduce this new mobile me CalDAV thing uh, just for the sake of introducing it. But at the same time, it did sort of bug me that, you know, here we are doing this podcast and I didn't know about this new mobile me or I didn't have firsthand experience with it. It's important first 
to understand what has changed. So previously, uh, you would have calendars on your Mac and you could sync them with mobile me. And it was a proprietary sync. Uh, it would, you know, upload using the mobile me sync engine. And then you could have other Macs or your iDevices, uh, iOS devices syncing to mobile me as well. Uh, but the calendars were really all kind of stored on your Mac. And then mobile me was just this sync place. You could also get to them on the web. Uh, so the calendars were in different places, but it was using mobile me sync engine. And it was, Full fraught with opportunities for corruption. Uh, and that's really what moved me off to to Google Calendar because it was so reliable because it was hosted in the cloud. And uh, kind of like IMAP mail, uh, you know, I, with Google's calendar, I have all these clients, my iOS devices, my um, Macs and all that just subscribe to this calendar in the cloud. And it's all managed very, very well with the new mobile me calendar. Apple is doing the same thing uh, using a protocol called Caldev, which is an open uh, source uh, protocol. And it's way, way different. And even in many ways, better than what Google is offering because it supports a ton of uh, different data types, as opposed to just the calendar. I can sync my tasks up there. I can with busy Cal sync recurring tasks up and they sync back down to all my Macs. So in, with Google, I had no way of syncing to dos from uh, from my various calendars. With Mobile Me, I do. So this weekend, or actually Friday, I took the plunge and moved a bunch of my calendars from my Google subscription to Mobile Me, and it was a it was a chore. The they they have a a procedure uh, detailing how to do it. Uh, you essentially break your connection with Google. You move everything to Mobile Me. Uh, I actually wanted to leave some on Google and some and, and some on mobile me. And so I, I kind of did it manually, but, uh, but in the end it all worked. I now have busy Cal subscribed to my mobile me calendar, which all now lives in the cloud. I have a copy of it locally, uh, but that the, the host, the primary storage spot for all of the data is in the cloud. Uh, and the same with Google. So I have it synced to both. All of all of the calendars that I have to do's attached to are now syncing through mobile me and I can get those uh, on any of the Macs that I have. I can also sync my iOS devices. So my iPhone, my iPad sync not only to mobile me with the new calendar, but also to Google. So I have uh, I have everything in both in, in every place and it, it works really, really well. One of the cool things you can now do on mobile me is you can have a shared calendar that multiple people write to. This is something previously you could not do with mobile me. You had to use Google calendar for that. And that John, that's why you and I started using Google calendar for, uh, for our Mac Keycap calendar. At this point we could, if we wanted to move that to mobile me and it would, uh, in theory work fine. So, uh, so should you do this? The question is if you're, if your current calendar syncing setup works for you, and gives you everything you want, then no, you should not do this. Uh, there's no reason to, it, you know, and that's kind of what left me with no good reason to do it. Well, now I have a reason with these to do's. I, it, it was getting frustrating. Um, and, uh, and, and I, and then, and I have a, another reason I can't tell you about yet, but we'll, we'll leave, we have to leave that off the table, but, uh, well, <laughs> soon I will be able to talk about it, but, but there was another reason to move to mobile me, but, uh, but it is really nice having to do's on all of my Macs uh, and and we'll leave it at that. 
but uh, that that's why I made this move. And I'm really happy now. It, it syncs well. Uh, all of the, the data types go. I have a bunch of recurring to do's like prepping the geek gab and, you know, various things at the, the officer at home. And they're just everywhere. I want them to be now. And it works really, really well. It was a, it, it is a chore to make the, uh, the transition, of course. Uh, and I highly recommend you make all sorts of backups, but, but if there are those things that you want to want to move, uh, or want to move to, then yes, it is worth it. But otherwise, no, don't, don't feel obligated just because the option is available to you as a mobile me customer to do this. Now it, what would happen to answer Phil's question? So now you make the decision whether or not to do it. Let's say you make the decision to do it. If you unsubscribe from mobile me, what happens? Well, you have copies of all of your calendar data locally. So, so you're okay there. However, uh, you will lose the ability to sync, uh, because you no longer have a subscription to mobile me. What one last thing I'll say, I know you have a question, John. One, one last thing I will say is if you do this after you've made the transition, you must go back into system preferences, into mobile me, into the sync pane and uncheck the calendar syncing box because that is syncing with the old mobile me. Now your calendar, either iCal or BusyCal or your calendar devices are the application is connecting with mobile me's CalDAV server directly and not going through sync services anymore. So that it's, it's an important distinction to make, but you can have both. You can have Google, you can have mobile me. It's no problem. And, uh, you, you know, you, so you can stay subscribed to your Google calendars and it all just works. It's uh, it's good. So, so any questions, John, not a question, but a comment. Okay. So, so Cal, Cal dev, mm-hmm. I, I just thought it was interesting. So I was looking into that while you were rambling, um, rambling <laughs> or expounding or whatever. Yeah. But CalDev, so you may notice that CalDev is very similar to WebDev, which is a way for you to access a network volume yep. over the web. And CalDev is an extension of that. And it's actually defined in, uh, what is it? RFC. We don't care. 4791. No, somebody cares out there. And, and it's funny because one of the people on the board of, uh, you know, RFCs are, of course, documents that describe Internet protocols that are eventually adopted and implemented far and wide. Right. And it's funny because one of the people on the board that helped define CalDAV is from Apple. Yeah, I so. believe Apple was instrument. I don't I don't know if they invented CalDAV, but they might have. Uh, they, they were certainly instrumental in in enhancing were- it. They were certainly part of the group that helped define the internet standard that defined CalDAV, which, right. you know, standards are good. Yeah. This. Yeah. No, it, and it seems to work really well. Um, I had a battery issue on my iPhone on Friday and I, I couldn't tell, there was a lot of things going on, some of which I can't tell you about yet, uh, but I will <sighs> as soon as I can. Uh, but, uh, so I'm not sure if, if connecting to this CalDAV server, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of syncing and stuff cause you know, at, I, listen, I've got calendars now on mobile me that go all the way back to 1992. So there was a lot of data out there. Uh, so I don't know how much of this syncing, but since then I have not had battery issues and I am push syncing to both mobile me for the calendar and Google uh, for the calendar. And it seems to work fine. I, I'm actually really, really happy with it. In fact, just before we did the show here, John, I realized I had not uh, moved busy Cal on. I hadn't added mobile me to busy Cal on my computer up here in the studio. So I did it very quickly. Mm. It synced very quickly, which was sort of surprising. I thought it would take a lot longer, 
And uh, and to do's were moving back and forth. I checked off a to do on my uh, computer here and I looked downstairs and it was instantly gone. So it's pretty cool. It works very, very well. So. All right. And next, uh, maybe Dave's uh, not you, Dave, but no. uh, another Dave's another tale Dave. of tale of woe. Yeah, he's got a tale of woe and then a follow up question about that tale of woe. So we'll we'll start with the with the tale of woe and see if we can offer some help. Hi, guys. This is Dave from Williamsburg calling. Um, I'm trying to troubleshoot my my wife's laptop, and uh, I've got it fixed, but I can't get the fix to stay. Background is she's running a MacBook with OS 10.6.5 and Mail 4.4. She's been on the system for about six months, running a POP account through our local ISP, Cox. Now, uh, sometime last week, she, she lost her ability to send mail. She was still receiving just fine, but everything in the send queue got uh, uh, the server rejected. So I finally got on, uh, on the phone with Cox last night and walked through level one troubleshooting. She identified this as a problem that uh, was from one of the more recent Apple updates but she couldn't solve it. So she kicked me up to level two. Now, in the meantime, last night, I also, uh, I blew out her old pop account and created a new one, repopulated the information on the mail accounts pages uh, in case something wasn't wasn't right. But I, I still had the same problem. Well, I got online with level two today, and they immediately had me go to, uh, under, under the account section, account information, outgoing mail server. And they had me go down to edit the SMTP server list. And what we found out was that um, you have two choices there under the advanced section, use default ports or use the custom port. Now, what had been checked was use default ports 25, 465, and 587. Right. They told me, no, you're just supposed to use port number 25. So I checked that Ooh. port, okayed out, saved it. Now he said, here's where your problem is going to be. Sometimes it sticks and sometimes it doesn't. So he had me reboot my computer, her computer, and lo and behold, it had reverted back to the one I didn't want, the 25, 465, 587. He's told me this is something that's been triggered by one of the Apple updates, and then I have to reach Apple, go through Apple to solve the problem of the fix not sticking. And, of course, I can't find any information anywhere. So here's where you cut me off. Okay. All right. So this is interesting. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I've got some I've got some thoughts about it. I heard, I heard you... Uh, you uh, actually, I'm not sure what noise you made, frankly, John. But you made a noise when he said he was using port four tw- port twenty. Well, no, I, I made a noise because the, the sign of you know, cust- no customer support. No, I'm going to call BS because uh, the customer support blaming Apple for the problem. Oh, come on, guys! Right, but he's using but maybe, port- maybe maybe they're correct, but but um, no, I think I think we're going to address the issue. So it sounds to me like the problem is. Somehow the settings are undoing themselves, which to me is, sounds like a blame Apple thing, but maybe there's something to it. I, I, I think it's you can blame Apple if you want. I don't think it's Cox's problem. I think the mm-hmm. issue my guess is the issue here, Dave, is that you've got a damaged preference file where the setting <sighs> is not sticking. 
right? Ooh. It stays in RAM. And so you make the settings change and it's fine. But the next time you quit and come back in and it's got to read that pref file back from the disk, it's it, you know, the setting did not get written out. Now that could be damage to the file. It could be a permissions issue with that mm. file. It, you know, there are a lot of things that it could be, but I think it's related to that file. The first thing I would try is remove the SMTP server entirely. So this is, you know, mail preferences. Uh, and if you go into accounts, you can see where at the bottom of the first account information screen, you see the outgoing mail server and you have uh, a little drop down list. Edit that list and remove any any instance of this particular mail server from it. If possible, remove everything from it and now add a new one in. Uh, actually, remove everything from it. Say, OK, quit and then come back in and make sure that list is still empty. Uh, if would, it is, would you reboot between that even? Um, they get rid of it. You shouldn't yeah. have to reboot, oh, okay. but, but sure. That wouldn't hurt. Yeah. 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 But I, I think you'd be okay. With not rebooting. As long as you quit mail and come back in, as long as the list remains empty, add a new server back in. And, uh, what he's talking about is on the advanced tab of that, you know, mail's preferences are kind of convoluted, but it's the advanced tab of the SMTP server definition section where you can tell it to use the default ports, which are what he, he said, 25, 465 or 587 or, you can tell it to use a custom port, which in this instance, Cox is saying use 25. So which is fine as long as you're on Cox's network. It's not going to work when you're not, but that's OK. Um, that that would be my uh, that's that's what I would go for. If not, you know, the prep file, I believe this prep file lives in. I don't I don't think it's in library preferences. I think it's in library mail. Uh, hmm. yeah, I could be wrong about this. It might be, it might be the library preferences. Yeah, that's right. Cause the rules and everything are stored in library mail. So, um, it's going to be, yeah, it is going to be library preferences and com.apple.mail.plist is, I believe where we're going to go ahead and find that stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for all of you and I'm hoping that it doesn't break anything I'm supposed to do here. Uh, yeah, I think so. Well, while you're doing yeah, that, it is, I, I, it is com.apple.mail.plist. It stores a lot of stuff. So, you know, blowing away your preferences is, you know, it always comes with, with a cost. So if you don't have to blow away the file and you can fix it the other way, that, that would be even better. But if you are going to delete the prefs file, quit mail first, delete the file, uh, reboot just for good measure and then relaunch mail. So. The one thing I'll mention, Dave, is that it had me scratching my head because in the account information section that we were talking about, yes, there is a checkbox, use only this server. Okay. And and I find it kind of unusual that they would even have a checkbox for that because in a lot of cases, so Apple actually indicates what will happen if you check this and, and they say as follows. Indicate whether to use only the specified outgoing mail server to send messages or use any available server. Right. When the checkbox is not checked, mail tries to find another available server to send messages uh, that you specified if your specified trusted server is unavailable. Right. Which can be really handy. Which it may be worth experimenting with because I, I think I, I have that unchecked. And I, I think that by default, that, that is the setting, right? Yeah, by default, it is unchecked. That's right. I, I always wind up checking it on mine because I want to 
Oh, okay. Yeah, well, from a troubleshooting standpoint, right? I, I define a new oh, SMTP sure. server. I want to send mail. Well, if it's going to fall back to the others, I have no idea if the new one that I just defined worked. So that's why this box on all of my computers winds up getting checked because what will happen is I'll huh. check it. I'll test. If it doesn't work, I go back into the settings and fiddle around and get it working. And then once it's working, do I bother to go back in and uncheck the box? No, it's working. I leave it alone. You know, mm. I, just like I've always said, you know, if it ain't broke, you fix it till it is right. <laughs> Wait, no, that's not what I've always said. <laughs> so that's how it goes. That's how we roll. All right. Uh, anything more on this or should we go to his follow-up question? Oh, okay. Hi guys. This is David Williamsburg. Last night I spent quite a bit of time troubleshooting my wife's POP email account. And in the process, I blew out her inbox. Now it wasn't too bad. I'd backed up almost everything except the last five messages she'd received during the, while I was working, uh, I lost, but uh, it wasn't a killer situation, but it, it made me concerned about um, my IMAP account that I run my business through. I have an IMAP account, and it's since things are resident on the server, it's not clear to me of what tools or strategy I should use because I'm I'm pretty good uh, about backing things up on a regular basis. How do I back up an IMAP account? How can I make it safe in case the uh, it's not a Gmail account in case the uh, the, the company goes goes out of business or their servers get fried or I want to migrate or anything else. Uh, so any light you can shed, if there's any commercial programs, uh, I'll be willing to spend some money for that little extra peace of mind. I've got my Drobo and all these other tools for data backup and, and I hate to have things only resident in the cloud and not a physical, physical uh, copy on my desktop. So here's where you cut me off. All right. And I think I did cut you off. Yes. Success. You cut him off. Dave, I got a great suggestion. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> well, well, no, he was saying where to spend some money. I, I, I have one thought about where to spend money, but, uh, but, but I'll, I'll defer that to later. Okay. No, you don't I'm need to spend it. money on this solution because you already no. have the answer. Well, well, potentially, I think. So this is where I was scratching my head, Dave, because when I was doing my whole migration dance, you know, planning to send off my computer. Right. Um, I did this experiment where I was trying to bring my mail from a new machine over to the G5. Right. And, of course, there is the home folder, library, mail folder. And I brought that over, and for the most part, the mail uh, – and I was actually kind of shocked. I mean, the, the, the one thing that gave me comfort is when I looked at the number of items in the high-level mail folder that were identical between the – 10.5 machine and the 10.6 machine. So that made me think that, you know, somebody at Apple was probably thinking about this and they probably didn't change the format, even though the, the version of the mail app is different. They didn't change the format of the data too much. And I, I pretty much found that, that, that I brought the data over. And for the most part, it worked. So it's e EMLX files, right? Which are very yes. similar to Mbox. Well, no, I, well, yeah, they're no, they're EMLX files. They're not inbox. Yeah, files. Well, I, right. Well, I think they're yeah, and I saw those files, but I think they're portable. So, so right. I think Dave, part of the answer here, if you set up mail correctly, and I'll hand it to you after that, but if you copy over the home folder, library, mail folder, I believe that will have most of your. Uh, it will have your email effectively backed up. That's right. right. So yeah, it, it's a good question, Dave, because. As we as we said, in fact, in the calendar discussion, you know, the IMAP mail, its home 
is on the IMAP server. So in theory, uh, it, that's the place where you would back it up. But by default, when and for various reasons, uh, when you set up an IMAP account in mail on your Mac, if you go and you can go in and check this out, if you go into mail preferences accounts and then select your IMAP account and go to the advanced tab, uh, you'll see that there's an option. And by default, it says keep copies of messages for offline viewing. And the the selection uh, that you want to have is all messages and their attachments. So essentially what's happening is saying, yeah, we acknowledge that the server is the, the home, but we want all copies here, too. Now, there's various reasons for that. One is your concern right right there is it's a backup. In fact, just by being on your Mac, it's a backup. But uh, but you can then also back them up because they're files and and all that good stuff. It's also good for Spotlight because Spotlight indexes the EMLX files that we just mentioned. And so in order to have Spotlight able to search your IMAP folders, it needs to have that data on your Mac. Uh, And then lastly, it's great for offline viewing. If you're not connected to the Internet, you still want to be able to see your mail. So Time Machine, by default, will also back up your mail folders. Now, if you have IMAP accounts on three different or the same IMAP account on three different Macs, you might want to go in and exclude the IMAP folders on a couple of them. So you're not backing up your same IMAP data three to three different times. Uh, But maybe you want to be backing it up three different times. That's a decision you can make. So yeah, time machine is going to do this. Or as John said, you know, you can just copy the folder and, and you can go one level deeper. If you, if you look in home library and then inside the mail folder, you'll see uh, there's a bunch of different stuff out here. Uh, there are folders named after your account. So if it's an IMAP account, it's going to start with IMAP. If it's a pop account, it's going to start with pop and then it'll have the name and the email address of the account. Those folders contain the data in those accounts. So you can back them up individually or you can back up the entire um, home mail folder, as John said. And, and that's a good idea, I think, you know, because that's going to get all your mailboxes, not just your IMAP or your pop, but it's going to get all the, you know, stuff that's listed as on my Mac and uh, and all that stuff. So, yeah, you're uh, I think you're you're good. To, if you're doing time machine already, you're good to go. But if not, well, now you know what to do. Anything else there, John? Nope. No. OK. Uh, our third sponsor for the show is. Citrix with GoToAssist Express. It is the holidays, and we hope you're having a joyous time. Me, I'm looking for a region-crippling snowstorm. Uh, and if I get my region-crippling <laughs> snowstorm, well, when my family member calls me up, even from across town, to help with their computer, uh, they're screwed, right? I mean, that's the reality. I'm not going over there. Not in a region. I want trains to stop, right? I mean, we want that every airport shut down all of it, right? That storm is canceled due to lack of interest. Yeah, well, no, no <laughs> I, I have the, a lot of interest. So, but here's the thing. There is a magic answer and it's go to Assist Express because what I can do with go to Assist Express is I can help my family member on the other side of town with their computer or on the other side of the country or on the other side of the world. The way it works is I log into my go to assist express account. I say, I want to create a new session with my dad and it doesn't matter if my dad's on a windows machine or a Mac or uh, really, you know, uh, anything else. He, uh, he, I tell him, Hey dad, go to your web page and uh, go to this web page. And I give him a little URL. I could email it to him or, or read it to him over the phone. He visits the URL. Uh, it asks him, Hey, Dave wants to have access at your computer. And if, 
he really wants me to help him, he'll say yes. Otherwise, he'll say no. And I'll go back with my uh, my tequila in the fire and I'm good. Uh, but otherwise, I sit down. And uh, it lets me in. I see him on the I see his screen on my screen, my my computer, my keyboard and my mouse control his computer. And uh, and I can do whatever I need to do. He can watch. So, A, he can learn and B, he can make sure I'm not going and digging into, uh, you know, things that he uh, had put on the Christmas list to get for me, but then scratched off because I wasn't helping him with his computer. And, you know, he's forget this guy doesn't ever help me. So go to Assist Express. Uh, It's uh, go to assist dot com slash geek will get you a free 30 day trial, which will sail you through uh, Christmas and the remainder of this, our holiday season of 2010. So go to assist.com slash geek is the place to go for your 30 day free trial of that. All right. We have uh, quite, we had a slew of comments from show three Oh three. We are now, Oh my God. Were we they are fish shakes or finger wags or no, no they, just they were comments. comments. Yeah. Um, we are not going to get to all of these. So we're going to cherry pick the certain ones that are probably going to just be good comments as opposed to uh, things that I got to add one thing, Dave, you were talking about weather. It's not so much weather, but, um, tonight there is a, if you're hearing this, there is a lunar eclipse, which I think most of us in North America see, I think it's around 2 AM. Uh, I'm not sure Eastern time, but no, I just noticed this because I was looking at something, uh, my, my, my room is getting dark here, but I saw a full moon, but apparently there is a lunar eclipse tonight and, uh, it should be kind of cool. So anyways, moving on. Yes. we got a lot of comments. Uh, pick them. Yeah. All right. Uh, so let's go to, uh, let's, let's let Kirshen lead us in here. Hello, John, Dave and pilot Pete. This is Kirshen from a rather chilly Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I just listened to Mac Geek Gap number 303 and have a couple of tips to share. The first is regarding the mail.app split bar between the list of messages and the content pane of the currently selected message. I found that double-clicking on the bar will cause it to toggle between showing and hiding the message content pane. Secondly, regarding having to set the part of a compilation checkbox one at a time in iTunes, I have a tip which will ease the process. Smart playlist to the rescue. First, you will need to create a smart playlist which shows all the songs which are part of a compilation. To do this, select new smart playlist from the file menu. In the dialog box which appears, click on the pop-up menu which shows artist and select compilation. The pop-up menu to the right of this will change to is true, which is what we want. That is, This smart playlist will show all the songs which have compilation set to true. You can now change the name of the smart playlist, for example, to compilation. Next, go to the edit menu and pick the command select all or type command A. This will select all the songs in a compilation playlist. If you need to exclude some songs from being selected, you can command click on each song to unhighlight it. Finally, Choose the Get Info command from the File menu or type Command I. In the Multiple Item Information dialog box which appears, click on the Options tab button. Check the box to the left of Part of a Compilation and select No from the pop-up menu to the right of it. All set? Now click OK and voila! No more pesky compilations. Share and enjoy! And thanks for a wonderfully informative podcast. Best wishes for the season. 
Thanks, Kirshen. That's great. That's uh, I, I love how creative all of you folks can be with smart playlists. Anytime there's a funky problem, uh, somebody, and in this case, of course, it was you, Kirshen, comes up with a great solution using smart playlists to solve some other frustration uh, that is inherent in iTunes. So very, very cool. It's smart. It's smart. That's right. Uh, uh, all, right. all right. One more here. I think we're uh, we're getting. Well, we've we've got the some stretch here. We've got some comments that are that are good. We'll probably do. Uh, we've got what three more actually that are, that are short little comments. So uh, a correction uh, from oh. Brian. Uh, oh yes, yes. Who, who is the author? Uh, Brian Webster of Fat Cat Software, who's the author of iPhoto Library Manager, has a comment about the discussion we were having about managing iPhoto libraries in the last show. Uh, Brian says, I listened to the podcast and thought it might I might clarify a bit on how iPhoto behaves in the method that John was describing of dragging an iPhoto library onto the iPhoto icon. What happens when you do that is iPhoto will simply try to open that library directly rather than importing its contents into whatever library you had previously set to show up when you open iPhoto. This would be equivalent to double clicking a library that you had set uh, up in iPhoto Library Manager, for example. If you already have iPhoto running with a library open, iPhoto will give you a message asking if you want to switch libraries, offering to relaunch iPhoto and then open the new library. The message that iPhoto displayed to John about upgrading the library meant that iPhoto wanted to upgrade that older library to the new version, which, of course, John was correct not to do, since that would render the older library unable to be opened by the older version of iPhoto on the other machine. Once the library was upgraded, iPhoto would then just be displaying that library's contents instead of the library you were trying to merge it into. Another thing I've seen people do is take an iPhoto library and drag it into the main iPhoto window to try to import the content that way. Do not do this. iPhoto will dumbly import the contents of the library folder, including all the tiny thumbnail photos that are stored inside there, and it won't import any iPhoto metadata either. It's a real mess. This is basically the reason for iPhoto library manager's existence, because iPhoto doesn't really have any way of doing this stuff yet. Anyway, just thought you might want to know. So, yeah, thank you, Brian. That, that's that's the clarification and, we needed. So, well, we do want to know because Dave, actually, I'm going to tell you what happened when I tried to do this. So, so when I did the experiment before the podcast, I basically tried to drag the old folder over. I got this message saying oh, it's an old library, and I just kind of assumed because you know, to me, Apple software is kind of intuitive. I thought, well, duh. I mean, you drag a lot, drag over a library, right? Shouldn't it import that? No, that is no. not the answer. Maybe I got in a weird state here because I was going between versions of iPhoto. That's right. But when I dragged that over and and after the podcast, I tried to restart iPhoto. My iPhoto on my main machine would continuously say, would you like to import this library? And I'm like, no, but it wouldn't give up. So then I decided, well, you know, let me dig into the package file on my MacBook Pro. and. Usually when iPhoto starts up and it asks you to do it, there is a auto import folder, right. which a lot of utilities will toss photos in there. So when you start by photo, it'll be like, oh, look, new photos. Let, let me import them. Right. So basically what I did, and now you have to recall when we were giving this advice, rule number one, back up your library, uh, back up your iPhoto library package or folder, depending on the version of iPhoto you're using, because in this case, I screwed everything up, Dave. 
<laughs> right. And yeah, then I course. started digging into on my MacBook Pro, the iPhoto library, and I was digging around, uh, you know, and I deleted some things, and it all got screwed up. Sorry, you know, but uh, again, we advise people, make a backup of these files, and I did, Dave, so that kind of leads, I think, to our next uh, and probably final question here, which is, well, fortunately, of course, my iPhoto library is backed up on my time capsule. So, I decided to try to back up or restore my entire iPhoto library, which in my case is about 80 gigabytes. Okay. Wait, what are you saying to me? I'm not sure where you're going with this, but that's okay. Well, no, no, we may not go there. No, you're saying we're not doing a... Hold on. <laughs> I think we can do the show here, but you're saying we're not... So, anyways, uh, let, let me look at our uh, list here. Okay, we're not going to get into this. So, no. anyways... No, but what I what I did, all right, it, it's for a future show, but yeah. basically I had to restore my entire iPhoto library from my time capsule backup. So the moral of the story is if you're going to, and as we warned in the last show, if you're going to mess with your iPhoto library or pretty much any library, iTunes or any library, make sure you have a backup because, uh, again, we said it, Dave, don't try this unless you have a backup. And in my case, <laughs> because I had a backup, I was able to restore it back to its pristine original state because right. I had a backup. Now, uh, what, right. what what was involved there, it was a large file. It was 80 gigs. And then uh, in a future show, we'll talk. Uh, about, we might talk about it here. I want to I want to get through. I want to make sure we get through right. the related tips to last show. So, and if we've got time, uh, we'll do that. So excellent. Uh, let's, let's hear what Connor had to say about the uh, whole album artist thing and sorting with iTunes, because that, that's a, a nice follow-up to last week's show. Hello, John and Dave. This is Connor P. I have sort of a follow-up to Bill's comment on, uh, iPod artist oddity, I believe you called it. Um, I've run into a similar sort of quandary and contradiction with working with music between iTunes and my iPhone. Um, ignoring the fact that I have absolutely no idea what a compilation is. Maybe that's some sort of ancient term from when they uh, sold music on that, like, flat plastic stuff. I don't even know what that is. But anyway, um, <laughs> one thing I've run into was when I use the grid view uh, in iTunes, where you, it basically looks like the events view in iPhoto, uh, and I have it based on artist, so it shows one square for each artist. And I like to look at the artist list in my iPhone as well. But one thing I've run into is um, there are two fields uh, that are of note uh, in the info tab of any particular song in iTunes. One is the artist tab, and the other is the album artist tab. If you use the artist, you sort by artist in the grid view of iTunes, it actually sorts by album artist. And so this, this has led me on many a wild goose chase on why my songs aren't showing up where they belong, but I could search for them and find them. Um, so I always just sort of copy whatever's in the artist tab into the album artist tab. Cause rarely do I have an album that's not all by one artist. Oh, st sorry. Talking to the dogs here. They're being, they're being rambunctious. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, not talking back. Yeah. So, and I think when you display, when you don't put 
anything in the album artist field, iTunes goes back and pulls from the artist field. That's right. Uh, for that sorting and categorizing. But on the iPhone, the artist list actually behaves properly and categorizes in groups by the artist field, not the album artist field. This is, that's just some sort of weirdness that I've run into um, when working with my music. Uh, I, in case it actually does make a difference, I am a premium subscriber. Awesome. And uh, that's about it. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks, Connor. And thanks, thanks for being a premium subscriber. Yeah, so that, that's a follow-up to our discussion. There, there are a bunch of fields in iTunes uh, in, the, uh, in the info tab and in the options tab where, it, you know, you've got, and we mentioned sort artist last week, but you can still have things separated out if album artist is not consistent between the two. So, uh, you know, these compilations, you can get things that are very, very convoluted out there. And so make sure you check that album artist field as well. So, uh, and then finally a quick tip from last show and I'm pulling it up here now from, from David, we were talking about, uh, default shells and, uh, and how to change those and what they were and all that stuff. And David writes, uh, let's see. Oh, it's buried in here. You probably got a number of email uh, people that told you this. Uh, OS 10 has used the bash shell as the default shell for quite some time. I think since 10.3 and John, you, uh, you, you, you confirmed this, but then added some clarification. Yes. Wait, where is Jerry? No, I can do this no, from memory. This is David. I, We're on David. Uh, I'm sorry. So, sorry. Yeah, no, it's there, okay. Here we go. Yep. So anyways, so my comment was I was trying to change my shell because it was TCSH. Right. And, and as you pointed out, he was correct in that the default shell, if you install Mac OS X fresh since 10.3 or 4, Three. will be bash. Here's the thing. If you're upgrading, which is what I had done, then your shell will default, I think, to what your account was set at when you installed the OS. That's right. Now, there's two ways to to accomplish this. And I think uh, in, in my discussion with him, I found the better way to do it. So one way to do it, Dave, is when you go to terminal, as we pointed out, if you go to terminal and then in the uh, terminal preferences, there is a way to say, well, you know, when you launch... Um, you know, launch this instead of, and I'll bring it up in front of me here. So in, in uh, terminal preferences startup, there is a option shells open with default login shell or shell open shells open with command. Now, what I was saying is you could go to the command and I think I, actually we linked to an Apple support article that said this, and then you can execute the proper command, which is slash bin slash whatever the name of the shell is. But a better way to do it, Dave, I think, because there may be other uh, programs that would like to invoke the shell, not just the terminal. So I think the better way to do it is when you go to the account system preference. And the one we talked about, which you have to be very careful. And we know this because when you go to it, Dave, I believe you go to accounts and then you right click on your account. After clicking on the little lock, it'll be... Advanced settings, I think. That's right. Yep. If you write, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. I'm doing that right now. And one of the options is, hey, what shell would you like to launch when you, uh, let me, here we go. Login shell. So there is a specific entry, again, next to the red warning saying, don't do this, but in this case, it's fine. And there'll be login shell. 
And it's actually a little pull down. If you click on the pull down, it'll be bin and a whole bunch of shells. And because my system had been upgraded, you know, eons ago, <laughs> uh, it still had TCSH as right. the default shell. So what I decided to do was to change it to bash. Now, of course, there's some others here. And, and you know, you and I talked about them. The, the only one I haven't used, Dave. So there's SH, CSH, ZSH, which I've never heard of. Maybe that's the cool new kid on the block. I don't know. And then KSH. But anyways, so I think that's a better way to accomplish what we were talking about. So rather than having the terminal launch it, set it in login shell, and then go to default in the terminal, and it'll launch bash. And that's what I did. Cool. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's that is the best way to do it. because I, And I think we said you could use CHSH from the terminal to do that as well. Uh, and that will change it for your entire account. So if you remote access in or SSH in, you, uh, you, you get the benefit of, of that shell. All right. So back to your, uh, your iPhoto library thing, John, when you were copying that library back from your backup, it was a fairly large thing. And you noticed it was going very, very slowly. We're going to oh, wow. cut. You want to go here? Oh we're my gonna, gosh. We're going to cut to the chase on this. Go. Uh, but you found after some trial and error, you actually found something that, uh, at least for you, sped up this transfer. Yes, I did. Okay. So when I when I initially did the restore, and, yep. and again we we're talking a eighty gigabyte file. Yeah. Like, oh man. So I of course you don't want to do this, uh, you know, because wireless is always going to be slower. So I was trying to restore the file, doing it wireless. That's not even a consideration. So then I plugged my MacBook Pro into my time capsule, and of course both machines support gigabit Ethernet. Now, one inter- and, and then when I started the restore, I was looking, I used iStat menus, and I was looking at the network monitor, and it was saying, well, you're running about a megabyte a second. And I'm like... And you oh, had turned man. off airport at this point? Yes. Okay. okay. No, I was plugged in physically. I was definitely running on gigabit Ethernet. I had a physical cable right. between my MacBook Pro and my time capsule, which has a gigabit Ethernet uh, switch in it, essentially. Right. And I was looking at the transfer rates and well, first it was giving an estimate like this is going to take, you know, days. Well, not days, but many hours. And I'm like that, you know, gigabit Ethernet. I mean, that's fast, right? Should be. So like, what is wrong? And then in the back of my mind, I remember something that, that I've dabbled with. And at least in my case, Dave, and, and you're right, it's worth discussion. There is something in the lower levels of TCP IP called an MTU. And I think that's maximum transfer unit max i think it's maximum transmissible unit transmissible so uh, we could we could do a whole show about this but basically what it is is at the very lowest levels of any networking protocol there is a size of a packet that is sent before the computer on the other end says well let me let me check this out and maybe send you some information be it a checksum or uh, saying i i don't agree with this and the thing is in general the size of this the larger it is, well, I got to qualify this. So Ethernet defaults to 1,500 bytes. Okay. Okay. And where, do I, where do I set this? If, I, if I'm know, a user I'm, and I want to I tinker with this, where do I set it? You know, I'd probably go, Dave, so I'd go to system preferences. I'd go to network. Hold on. Let's take yeah. a moment here. And then I would go to the advanced tab. And then on the Ethernet tab, you will see a number of things. You will see a configure menu. And I'm looking at my G5 right now. Right. And it'll probably say automatically. And at least in the case of my G5, which being dated was still a pretty advanced machine. So I'm looking here manually. 
Okay. Speed, 1,000 base T, which is gigabit Ethernet. Duplex, full, contr- uh, full duplex flow control. And then it has an entry, MTU, standard 1500. What does that mean? That means that the size at the very lowest levels of the protocol of a packet that's being sent before error correction or whatever is done is 1500 bytes. Right. Now, Dave, you and I talked about this, and, and the, going back to the good old days of X modem and Y modem and Z modem, packet sizes were very small because phone lines really weren't meant to carry data. So they set it to 128 bytes or, or whatever. But anyways, I knew that you could set this value larger. So I was seeing a very poor throughput of about one megabyte a second for my time capsule to my MacBook Pro. And I'm like, you know, maybe I should set the MTU to something larger. And gigabit Ethernet in particular supports something called jumbo. Now, there's also super jumbo frames, which we're not going to talk about. But a jumbo frame, rather than 1,500, is 9,000 bytes. And actually, I did a number of tests. And at least in my case, Dave, I was able to increase the throughput from my time capsule to my MacBook Pro of transferring this monstrous file from about one megabyte a second to... 10 megabytes a second. So about a tenfold increase. This is now, interesting. Your okay. commentary, because you, and then we, you and I ran iPerf, which is a wonderful Unix utility right. to measure raw throughput. And my results were quite different from yours. Go on. Well, with iPerf. Okay. So when, and I saw this discussion happening because thankfully it was happening via email. Uh, there, we had a listener uh, who was, interested in this in fact it was jerry uh, from the last show from 303 where we were talking about gigabit ethernet and whether or not you know it was going to make a difference for him with his internet connection or his uh his his uh you know his local network and and so thankfully this discussion happened via via email so i knew all about this and uh or i knew that this was happening for john i thought oh this is weird and i said okay so uh running iperf which is which you know, when you're doing a copy, there are a lot of factors other than the speed of the network, uh, specifically disk speed. Right. You know, you've got a disk that you're reading mm-hmm. from on one end and writing to on another. So in almost all cases, uh, the disks are going to be slower than your network will allow. So in most cases, that's what's going to limit your speed. Certainly coming from a time capsule, that's what's going to limit your speed. The most I've ever seen out of a time capsule is about 30 megabytes, maybe 35 megabytes a second. Hmm. Uh, really? Yeah, that's what I get out of mine. So, um, so I, you know, when I saw this, I thought, okay, run iPerf and, and try it with the MTUs in either direction, you know, either the standard or the jumbo and, and see and for the most part, it was, you know, you were getting, you know, not a thousand, but you'll never get a thousand, but certainly in the 900 range. So I thought, OK, yep. good. Uh, and I saw I've seen the same thing here. I did a lot of testing when I set up gigabit Ethernet here, but you did find that setting MTU that when when running uh, copies right back and forth, changing the MTU back and forth between 1500 and 9000 caused a significant speed difference for you, right? For me, and, and the, the big one was if I had a machine with a larger go to a smaller that I think just by definition yeah. of how the network handles that, That's you're going to see problems because the yeah. problem is the receiving machine is like, what, what are you giving me 9,000 for? I, I, I don't understand this, so let's break it up into little bits. Right. And that's where I saw in my test, Dave, that the performance suffered. But um, you also said you saw it suffer going back and forth between your time capsule, right? 
Well, yeah, and that's the weird thing. So you and that's I weird. initially speculated that AFP may have some, because as far as I know, the, the, the time capsule uses AFP. Right. And, and I got to say, Dave, I'm, uh, again, I saw when I, when I changed the MTU on my MacBook Pro from 1,500 to 9,000, I saw the throughput increase by about tenfold. And so, you, is this repeatable? Because I'm curious. Because well, I, I'll, the, I'll, I'll run more tests, but, yeah. but it, 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 it went from time capsule saying, I'm going to take eight hours right. to transfer this file to I'm going to take one hour. Yeah, I'm just wondering. Now, their, their, their algorithm for estimating time, as any algorithm right. for estimating time to transfer a file is, is kind of flawed. It's looking at a you know short window and trying to make a, a good guess. But now I could have, and I think you and I agreed, maybe because technically gigabit Ethernet requires or, or they, they strongly suggest Cat6 cable. Yeah, I'm running over Cat Five E. Well, like, whoa, okay, and that may be in my case. I'm running Cat Five. Okay, yeah. So I think I may go to my pals at Mono Price. They have very, yeah. uh, from what I understand, high quality, inexpensive cables. I'm going to get Cat Six all around. Okay, because I did some tests this morning. You know, knowing that we would likely talk about this here, and I saw little to no difference in throughput. I was transferring hmm. a one gigabyte single file, so not a package. Right. Your, your iPhoto library, it's important to know your iPhoto library is not a single file. It's a series of very, very small oh, yeah, files. Yeah. Right. So not not an efficient uh, file to transfer. Right. It's it's going to have to read and write. And so there's there's lots of things that could get in the way of of just blasting data. So I took a one gigabyte file. In fact, I took the 1065 combo updater and uh, and I started copying it back and forth. And I found no noticeable difference uh, at all. I was getting about from uh, from my time capsule. I got again, I got about that 30 to 35 megabytes a second uh, to and from from my MacBook Pro to my iMac. I got about 50 megabytes a second uh, going back and forth. And it did not matter whether I had the M- this MTU setting to fifteen hundred or nine thousand. Now, the one time it did matter was when, as you said, I went mm. from a machine that had it. I had I think I had my iMac set to nine thousand and my MacBook Pro set to fifteen hundred. And I got an error message that was very mm. disconcerting. And it said I'm pulling it up here and in the, it. Well, first, what happened is my network stopped working on the MacBook Pro and sweet and things ground to a halt. And I saw in the terminal, it said Apple Yukon two bad packet received gave some length numbers of 1518 and then 9014 in parentheses. And it said packet status bits too long packet. And it just shut things down. So I, I have to assume that's the MTU mismatch that we were talking about. Now I thought the switches were supposed to handle this stuff. And I thought, I think switches pass it, but I think what happens is the receiver says, this is too big. Can you break it up a little bit? I'm, I'm, I'm and, and I think that's right. That, I, mm-hmm. I think it does. It asks the sender to break it up more. And I think the sender is supposed to ratchet down. And maybe it did, but something, it, it happened twice. So, you know, it wasn't a fluke the first time, but it totally shut down my Ethernet. So at this point for me, seeing no speed increases with, with MTU changed, I'm sticking with, with, uh, you know, all automatic settings and, and staying with 1500. I've never had a problem with time capsule over Ethernet. I do it all the time. I, okay. I, I'm wondering. I, so I'm wondering a couple things about your setup. Now, everything I've researched about jumbo frames, uh, basically the the end res, the end result of all the advice is test it on your own network, and if you like what you see, 
go with it. If you don't like what you see, go the other way. Right. So for you, uh, you know, I, I guess I, my question would be transferring a single large file is really the mm-hmm. best way to test Apple yep, yep. file performance right over over this. So so I'm curious if you can repeat this, because if you can, it's it's bizarre. I mean, it, you you have a solution, so, you know, use it. Right. But I, I've never heard of AFP being that slow at now. Apple talk, which was back in the old days, was notoriously, yeah. you know, inefficient over a it was chatty exactly um and but i i didn't think afp was so this is interesting so uh so test it if you're running a gigabit network uh change your devices and see if you get better throughput and if you do then stick with it and if you don't then go back but I think what I'm going to do at the very least, I mean, it could be the cables because my understanding is if, if if I have cat five, because I have all cat five, right. there's a cable that was just lying around. I mean, you know, it's not falling apart, but cat five may introduce a level of low level, you know, inefficiency that, that I don't see. Right. So yeah, so it's possible. Price, I'm going to get all cat six. Yeah. And we'll see. But it's a good discussion because uh, and th- then I got to comment, uh, you know, to complicate things from a Windows pal on Twitter saying, well, you know, Windows sometimes uh, older versions of Windows has an MTU of 14 something. And that also leads to the thing you pointed out, Dave, where if the one machine has a bigger MTU and another has a smaller, bad things can happen. Right. And it slows you down. It slows you down. Yeah, that's right. And I hear the band and the, the band here. must be cold. Yeah, we were starting to get some snow before, but not region crippling. Yeah, well, uh, watch the eclipse tonight. Come on. That's right. No, it'll be snowing. I won't be able to see it. Yeah, you will. Unless it's a... (laughs) Region crippling. But anyways, Dave, while we're closing out here, we we should talk about... If you want to get in touch with us, if you're snowed in, and you just want to send us a message, you know, just saying hi, or, you know, I'm cold, or (laughs) the lights are out. Well, no, you can't do that. No, yeah, that's right. Sure, but but Dave, you know, if I had to do that, I would probably send an email to feedback at macgeekapp.com. No, 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 no. You got to send it to feedback at macgeekapp.com. Yeah, I'm going to differ with you because I would send it to feedback at macgeekapp.com. But Dave, there's that's also right. a way to call us if your telephone is working, and I would strongly advise a landline telephone because these cell phones and all the new stuff doesn't work and if i had to call dave i would probably pick up the phone and call 206-666-GEEK which is 4335 and uh you can skype us to mac geek gab and uh you can twitter us uh twitter mac geek gab for stuff about the show i'm dave hamilton he's john f braun he's pilot pete and of course mac observer on twitter has all the headlines from uh, tmo every day We'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast for all of his help uh, converting this to AAC. Of course, the folks at Cashfly provide all the bandwidth, and we appreciate that. C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Jimbo from Barebones Software, Disc Label from Smile, and Notebook, of course, from Circus Ponies. All through Backbeat Media. Uh... 
This may be the last show of the year. It may not be. But if it is, Happy New Year to all of you. Thank you so much for listening, contributing, supporting us. Uh, Really, really appreciate it. I know we say it a lot, and it's because we mean it a lot. So, really, thank you very much. And uh, I hope those of you that celebrate Christmas have a great Christmas. Uh, If you celebrate something else, I hope that goes well. And, of course, Happy New Year uh, for, for all of you. Anything else, John? Are we done? No, we're done. All right. I'm going for the eclipse, man. I'm, I'm seeing a cloudy moon outside of my window here. Hmm. <laughs> oh. No, foggy moon. It's weird. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Don't get caught. Made up.